Where do you want to start? Hi, this is Agan Wukash, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. We met very early on into my podcasting adventure at the dawn of Catching the Next Wave during the course run by Alex Di Palma and Seth Godin called the Podcast Fellowship. It was supposed to be a summer program for students who wanted something else rather than a traditional job. And I think in so many ways we were those students, weren't we? <laughs> Maybe not the right age, but you know, that there was something about being a student. And we both stuck to making podcasts, so we are both still doing this. Our today's guest, David Nabinski, is the host of the weekly 200-plus episode, uh, Portfolio Career, and a community operations manager for the Chief of Staff Network. David is also founding coach for Maven, an educational startup funded by Gagan Biani and Wes Kao, who was very early on in Alde MBA, the provost, right? Most recently, David worked directly with uh, Chris Shembra, US Today Gratitude Guru, SVP of Grove at uh, 747 Club. I hope that I'm pronouncing it right. And as a general manager with Lisa Carmen Wang. And most recently, he's the community operations manager for the Chief of Staff Network and BizOps Network, focusing on building community and designing and facilitating group learning programs for the two membership professional networks. We stayed in touch through podcasting accountability group that David runs uh, as an extension of being a coach in the podcasting fellowship, the one that we did together. And I'm super happy to have a chance for us to finally chat about podcasting and more. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Aga. This is uh, such a treat. I'm excited to see what I learned from you from this conversation. Lukas <laughs> <laughs> is unfortunately not with us today, but we both had this question nagging at us, which is your family name is Nabinski. Is there any Polish connection there? Yeah. Oh. Uh, uh, so I want to say... Um, 25%, 25 or 50% Polish and also Irish and also Lithuanian. Wow. So never been to Poland. It's on my list. Maybe conversations like this will help pull me there. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it seems to be uh, one of these like emerging hotspots for just a lot of people and obviously has an incredible tradition and history and stuff. So. Oh, it would be so cool to meet you in person over here. Maybe not in the winter. It's kind of cold and dark right now, but uh, <laughs> summer is like a very nice uh, moment to visit Poland. Okay, but let's get to our conversation. So you are a person who I know, who is a master of community building. And I am terrible at it. So let me start with this. Building a community, what does it take? I'm not an expert by any means, uh, but thank you for that. As you were talking about the podcasting fellowship, podcasting workshop, to me, that experience in the summer of 2018 really kind of transformed me. What I learned from there was when you have like-minded people together, there's a lot of possibility and opportunity there. And... Often people don't know each other that well, but there's incredible trust and there's incredible interest from people to do things together, whether that's 
Zoom calls, other types of community and social learning experiences. So I think in the podcasting workshop in the summer of 2018, I remember being like, wow, we're all really connecting over discourse, which is kind of a communication messaging board. It really felt like we all kind of knew each other, but we hadn't even chatted yet. And I think in that situation, there wasn't as much structured community calls. So there was like a lot of like pent up demand for people wanting to connect. And then I remember just my being like, does anybody want to hop on Zoom? Or I actually think I think it was Skype. Does anybody want to hop on Skype like this weekend, you know, struggling editing, or I'd like to learn how you edit, or I'd like to see if there's different ways that we can help each other. And when people said yes to that, it just was like profound to me. I was like, huh, I wonder if I can kind of keep doing those things. So I learned a lot through that program. And um, I think uh, I've been trying to continue to model some of those types of behaviors. Also, like if you put yourself into roles where <laughs> that's the job, then you got to figure something out, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> so actually, you haven't been building communities before the podcast fellowship. Well, one thing that my family did that was another kind of profound experiment or effort was... So unfortunately, I lost my dad after college. And a couple of years later, me and my family, we learned about this race, this run in the Washington, D.C. area. And the proceeds of that race and run were going to kidney cancer, which is how I lost uh, my dad. And you know, we hadn't ourselves had found like a vehicle as a way to learn and grow and to process this. We'd kind of like didn't really talk about it as much of like how we were feeling about it. It was kind of like a sensitive topic. And then when we learned about this, this race, we were like, oh, this sounds fun. I like running. Let's do it. Let's see what happens. Then people came. People like friends wanted to to join us. And for nine years since then, the 10th year was during the pandemic, so it didn't happen. But for nine years, we would organize a team. Sometimes we do, you know, more things than other years. Like sometimes we would create swag, which is like t-shirts or headbands. And I remember in like 2014, 2015, I'd moved to San Francisco and we decided to do one of these kind of raffles and people were buying the stuff and people like wanted to contribute who weren't going to the race, but that wanted to help out and wanted to support. That was a really like incredible and touching experience, but also like showed this, um, you know, when you create ways for people to connect people, ways for people to support ways for people to contribute, it can really help a lot of people. So that was, you know, a smaller kind of, I don't want to say experiment, but um, definitely like learned from that about how to organize, how to lead, how to take initiative and uh, have been trying to remember those things kind of since then. Obviously, the very important element of creating a community is to have like-minded people or people who are focused on something that brings them together. However, I've seen a lot of attempts at building community and th th these attempts even got people who are like-minded or focused on the same thing and nothing happened. Obviously, this is a necessary ingredient, but not necessarily sufficient. So what makes a community be an alive community rather than a dead one. 
Aga, what do you think contributed to that example where you had the right people there, but forward motion or forward progress didn't happen? What do you think happened there? So in the case I'm thinking about right now, the case was that there was a course organized by people who talked about the fact that their main goal was to create a community. And I was already a little bit more aware about community building from the LMBA and from our podcast fellowship. So I had this thought that if you don't animate the community, the community is not going to animate itself. Or at least it's unlikely that it's going to animate itself. I don't know if it was your trick, but it was a trick that I learned from you, which was uh, giving the weekly challenge, like a tiny, tiny little thing that you say, you ask a question and people react to that question and you put variation of that question every week. And then people basically they get engaged and then the conversations start. So I did it for some time and indeed the community wasn't really very active, but some things were happening. And at some point I was curious, okay, what if I let it be on its own? I wasn't supposed to build that community. So, you know, like it was a little bit more of an experiment on my side than anything else. And basically very quickly after I stopped doing this, the community was basically gone. It was a Slack channel. You have in, in the Slack channel... 20, 30, 40 or 100 people, but nothing is happening, completely nothing. And I was thinking, oh, what a waste of potential, really. For those people who are running the course to create that community and keep this community alive, but also for this community to have interactions with each other. A lot of interesting points there. And thanks for pointing out the weekly prompt. I think what you pointed out there that I want to uh, talk about is the importance of consistency. And so I think as any community builder or organizer, consistency is super important because you need to continue to develop trust. You need to continue to showcase like you care about this and mm -hmm. that there's someone there. In the case of, for us with the cohort-based course, like we all had kind of gone through this transformation together. And so now that we all had launched our podcast, we all were wanting to continuing to publish together. So we had like a similar vision as to what's in a shared vision that was next too. And also at the same time, there's not much call it like competing interest or anything that we all wanted to just publish our own shows each week. So I think that that really worked well. And we also were kind of used to maybe some prompts through the work that we were doing and how we kind of learned together. There's a great book called Get Together that really talks a lot about one of the main ideas is you don't build community at people, you build it with people. The more and more that you can do to empower everybody that's involved, and it's more of a, a bottoms up approach as opposed to a top down approach and always with people um, and also talks a lot about the idea of what are the things that this group of people can do uniquely together? What can you all co-create together? And so in the case for us, like we could co-create text-based threads and we could also co-create really dynamic, hopefully really dynamic conversations through group calls. Yeah, I think habit, consistency, purpose, 
ideally you also have a shared experience that has already kind of brought you guys together. Those are some of the the things that I kind of think about. And the more that you can also kind of create, you know, we're kind of familiar with like the people like us do things like this. So the more that we can create language or hooks or things that kind of make unique and for this group of people, the more that I think it kind of like resonates. Like I think we both use language that we learned or that we co-created during the cohort-based course. So I think I probably thought like, let's keep using that language. It reminds us of that special feeling that we had during the cohort-based course of overcoming challenges of imperfection or imposter syndrome related to our work. We heard, and I still hear it in the back of my mind, go, 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 which (laughs) is just like, you know, it doesn't matter if it's not perfect, like just keep going. I completely agree with everything you said, yet I would add another thing. A community needs a person who takes care of that community. So I don't know if you know communities that run by themselves. I don't. Usually there is a person like you who often in a very light way reignites this fire that once was there. And then, you know, sometimes it may be, it doesn't die, but it kind of goes tiny. I mean, mean, the beauty of what you want is that there's multiple leaders. There's multiple people that feel empowered to, you know, start their own Zoom call. But yeah, I think especially to your point, especially maybe in the beginning, there's not as much. Uh, So it does kind of take one person to really lay a foundation and consistently show up and, you know, have one-on-one calls over and over and over again, or, you know, one-on-one direct messages if it's over Slack to just really show that this is going to be around and and why it matters to you too. I think I really learned the power of accountability. One thing that I used to always talk about was like, people say like, Hey David, how did you get to 200 episodes? And I kind of say like, I boxed myself in. So, you know, through that, the Facebook group that we had, like, I think starting it, getting it going and inviting people and making sure all the people kind of got in there. Then I felt like a sense of responsibility. Hey, I invited people to this thing. Better be good. Like I, I don't want to <laughs> like I got I got my name on that. And then a little bit after that, then I was lucky to serve as a coach in the, the podcasting workshop, trying to coach other people on how to launch their show or um, helping them overcome the learning challenges that they're going to face. I think it probably would have helped if I was continuing to podcast too. So <laughs> kind of bo- boxing myself in to say like how can I put myself into environments and places where the thing that I want to do just gets a lot easier? And I think like James Clear talks a lot about this in Atomic Habits, which is like, if you're trying to make change, you want to become the identity of the new type of person or how do you embody identity-based habits? So with podcasting, it was like, okay, if how do I put myself around people that also want to become podcasters. Therefore, then the not inevitable, but it becomes so much easier for you to become the person that you want to become Mm -hmm. with other like-minded people. Absolutely. Accountability is an extremely powerful concept, I find. Recently, a lot of people are doing the artist way. And those who get accountability buddy, they usually end up on the other side, not only going through the entire course, but also 
actually much more satisfied. And I think that this is this concept of metacognition that when you have a chance to discuss these things with someone else rather than just with yourself, it just makes things so much more powerful, I would say, potent. And it sounds like you're also saying it makes it kind of real too. Mm -hmm. Like you may be publishing podcasts on a regular basis, but if you don't talk about that, you're doing it on a regular basis. Maybe you, you may think about it differently. Accountability is super powerful. One thing that I've tried to do is, and I'm in one right now, is like create like really small accountability groups. And it also goes back to James Clear's work, which is like make progress super easy, right? Like if you say, I want to write a book, there's a lot of steps along the way. Okay, you know, you know way more than I do. But, you know, what's the smallest kind of unit that you could do to make progress on it? So right now I'm in a like, small fitness accountability group. Um, I know it doesn't look like it, but in a smaller little fitness accountability group with two friends. And it's not a big thing that we're doing, but the idea of small steps and then communicating to people, hey, I did this. I think it it sends a lot of ripple effects, especially these days. I feel like there's not as many ways to, it depends on the type of work that you're doing, but like, how do you measure what's progress looks like? It sometimes can be hard. I was talking to somebody earlier today who was talking about how he kind of works on a bunch of different things. He's got a portfolio career and he's like, how do I really know if I'm making progress or how do I get really comfortable with that progress? And I couldn't really answer his question for him. But the thing that I was thinking about is like, what are the things that you can measure? And so for me, one thing that I do measure is like, you know, did a new podcast episode go out each week? Like that feels really good. That's something that I can see. Same thing with this accountability group with two of my friends. Like we send a text message after we do the thing that we said that we were going to do. Those are like the small things that I think like you can, you can measure how you showed up for those. The other stuff you can't sometimes, you know, like how many downloads does a podcast episode get? You can't, you can't measure that as much or you can't control that as much and grateful for the people that are listening to this conversation. So I think accountability is really good, especially when you make it small in something that's like manageable. Let's switch gears here and talk a little bit about your podcasting journey because we started at the same moment and I must say that uh, it is a journey and it has different flavors along that journey. So I'm curious, how was it for you? Uh, Well, I love the way that you guys are doing the different seasons. I think that that's brilliant. I told you a little bit about kind of boxing myself in. So I think being lucky to be a coach in podcasting workshop really helps me kind of get through some probably tougher periods. I think that I also have always looked towards trying to take leaps. You can't do it every time, but like every five to 10 to 15 episodes, really try to like do something different or reach out to somebody that if they say yes, ooh, okay, <laughs> now, now I've got to like really make this great. All episodes are great, but I think stretching yourself has really helped me. And then, you know, kind of smaller experiments that I've done for accountability, micro communities, 
different events, things like that, that I've done along the way. You know, I think the the repetition is good. That's so then you improve your skills along the way. But I've also tried to do things kind of like around the podcast that have made the journey even more exciting and even more varied mm-hmm. um, while like continuing to get better, hopefully, at having better conversations. Like one thing that I definitely wish I would have done earlier was I spent a lot of time in the beginning editing and trying to like over-engineer things, over-produce things. I think once I realized I'm like, what was good enough, then it became a lot easier to not waste as much time. And also I feel better about the work that I was doing. I don't know if you had it, but I remember when we started making the podcast, our podcast, I didn't like the sound of my own voice. So I would over edit myself. <laughs> so I would basically cut like probably 95% of everything that I said. And only after like probably four or five seasons, I was able to accept my rambling as something being a part of that <laughs> whole experience, which was like really, really funny for me. <laughs> you sound great. You sound great. <laughs> Thank you. Your podcast is called the Portfolio Career Podcast. Let's unpack this whole idea of portfolio career. How did you arrive at this? I had noticed a shift in worldviews when I was in New York. So from 2014 to 2016, I was in San Francisco. And when I was there, It was all about kind of what startup do you work at? Then when I moved to New York, while I still was with that startup, I started meeting friends that we talked about books, we talked about blogs, we talked about events, we talked about community types of things that they were building. And I thought that that was just so fascinating how like the thing that they were really lit up about or passionate about was not the startup and how much money their startup has raised or how fast their revenue was growing. Um, But it was these other things about, you know, how they were personally growing, how they were helping other people. That was really interesting to me and and refreshing. Then around that time, or a little bit after that, I started working on multiple different things. One thing was freelance. The other thing was professional development community that I was helping out with uh, on the side. And I was doing these two different things. And people were asking me, like, Hey, David, I see you doing this. I see you doing that. I don't really understand it. And I was like, I'm just kind of being me. Like, what do you, <laughs> what, what do you mean? And especially since I then started meeting other people and I was friends with these other people and I was like, well, look, they're all doing something like this. They look to be happy. They look to be having fun. They look to be learning. They look to be contributing. So I didn't really have like a way to really describe it or articulate it. Then when I learned about the podcasting fellowship, through Seth Godin's blog, I uh, was like, this is it. I didn't have my own body of work. I hadn't really been actually searching for a podcast or like wanting to create a podcast for years. I know many people kind of think about that for a while. It's like, oh, I really want to do this. For me, it was just like in the moment, I was like, this makes a lot of sense. Like, um, <laughs> I want to do this. And it was like kind of like an experiment and I wasn't quite sure how it was going to go, but it was incredible. Got to meet you and so many other people you know, started, I had this portfolio career. I started noticing other people that had, were doing interesting lifestyle experiments and then just kind of kept going and kept learning from different 
people in different ways, how they were designing their lives and writing books like yourself, uh, podcasting like yourself. Like I think this stuff's just really interesting to me. And it seems like it's the opportunity for people to create their own bodies of work has probably never been easier than it's. So I think that that's all really exciting. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that you explain a little bit, but I'm going to drag it more explicitly from you. So how do you define the portfolio career? I've never been good with definitions. And I think it's open to everybody's interpretation. But for me, it's doing something that is beyond your nine to five day job. And it varies. Like sometimes you have a job and then sometimes, you know, you do it for a little while and then other times you're freelancing for a while. But I think it's, are you creating things? Are you organizing? Are you creating a forward motion that is helpful for you and for others? Sometimes, you know, you don't get paid from them, right? Like my podcast, I don't get paid from it. So it's building things beyond your, you know, typical day job. Philip K. Dick said that future is already here, but it's not evenly distributed. As I was listening to some of your episodes and also thinking about it in terms of you, me, Ukash, a lot of friends around who decided to go in an alternative direction to nine to five job. It kind of gives me an impression that this, is the future of work that more and more, especially with the pandemic, when people realize that maybe they are not necessarily seeing themselves as people sitting in front of Zoom for eight hours <laughs> or spending time on the mirror, that they, they would like to have a different kind of life. I think that in a way, what you spotted fairly early on, I think, as this portfolio career, I, I really like the name, is something that's probably going to become increasingly more popular and more the way people work. How do you see that? I'm not a futurist, but I'm glad to see that there's more interest and more possibility in this lifestyle. Again, for me, it's it's been really great. I've, I've worked on one thing and have gone all in on something. And having the ability to move to something else, to learn about something else, to take ownership of my learning journey, of my career, um, having more personal agency and not feeling like that I'm waiting for other things to happen that are outside of my control. I think to me, that's really liberating. I think that we are definitely in an interesting period. Like what is the office and what does that mean for people's jobs? What does that mean for their work? What does that mean for their relationships? What does that mean for their career? I think that we're still just starting to try to figure out what it all means. But my sense is that since we've been in this period for a while, I think people are going to be very hesitant to go back to some of the things that they did before because they've noticed the, or have been given more flexibility or autonomy um, or have had to adapt on their own. And I think thinking that other people are going to do that for you or that like your company is going to provide that for you is seemingly less and less popular amongst people. 
I don't know. It's a really interesting time period. I wish I had a, a crystal ball, uh, <laughs> you know, as the experienced designer, as someone who creates things for people, I think you probably got a better idea about it than I do, but it also does seem like the younger generation. I think it seems like they're interested in developing their own ideas, developing their own audience and are trying to be more thinking about this sooner and sooner, like their exposure to people that are creating you know, are able to monetize or find partnerships or collaborations all through kind of social media and stuff. I do think that that like people are seeing it earlier and earlier and are kind of seeing some of the benefits. And I think that that will probably only continue. I don't think that they will stop that. After. It's kind of like, you know, like with, with cohort-based courses in the podcasting fellowship was like, there's these things like once you see, you can't unsee. And I think for me, and the experience that we had, I like couldn't unsee what it's like when you have 300 like-minded people all trying to create a podcast from scratch. So powerful, so incredible. And I think probably a lot of other people can't unsee some of the flexibility, some of the agency that they've been having over the last 18 months or so. Mm. I'm not sure that you're doing this on purpose, but I, I'm kind of having a feeling that there's a little bit of contrasting between the startup culture of San Francisco and portfolio career of New York. And I think that in a way, our generation is a little bit more startup-y in the sense that, okay, we, at least the more entrepreneurial of us, didn't want to go and work for the men. <laughs> they wanted to create something of their own, but the concept usually was a company. And the company has a consequence of the fact that you choose the direction and you have to stick to it, otherwise it's not going to work. And with the portfolio career, at least what I love about it is that you have this flexibility of choosing and switching and trying and really figuring out what it is that excites you at the particular moment, which is a very interesting difference from the startup culture that you've been mentioning earlier. Obviously, those are probably like some like the stories that I've been telling myself about the SF, San Francisco versus New York. One thing that's been kind of interesting to me recently is, and maybe it's also a little bit more on a like the story that I'm telling myself and the one that I'm kind of communicating elsewhere is that the company that I work with knows that I have a podcast. One way that contributed to me, I think, learning about this role was because of the podcast. I definitely know that there's been people that have been like hiding side projects. I think that what's cool these days is it's, we're kind of moving beyond that. And I think that people are getting hired because of the audience or the side projects that they've been doing. And I think that that's been a shift that I think is really interesting and empowering. And also you're able to utilize these things to the next thing, right? Like the relationships and the body of work that I have built up through the podcast, it's not tied to a company. So I love the work that I'm doing, but you know, it's really cool to say like, if something doesn't work out here, like I know where I can pick right back up. Like I can think about how can I use the podcast or the people that I met from this or people that are interested in the the podcast, you know, maybe they want to collaborate or maybe we can work together. So I think that that's really cool. One obvious advantage of doing these things is that you get more choice. On the other hand, if you decide for a very radical portfolio career, meaning that you are really doing your projects, it is 
very tightly connected to a huge amount of uncertainty. This is still something that we are not very well educated in, dealing, dealing with, with uns- uncertainty. uncertainty. <laughs> it sounds like what you're saying is we don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind and of got- true all the time, but uh, probably when you are on your own, you are more acutely aware of it. A prior podcast guest, her name is April Rennie, recently published a book called Flux. She developed a, a term called the Flux Mindset. And I think there's seven or eight superpowers for a Flux Mindset, one of which is creating a portfolio career. But one of the things that she talks about is this idea that change is inevitable and dealing with that is the only thing that's kind of certain. Like change will always be happening. And so instead of always being scared about change, knowing that it's going to happen hopefully is a little bit more comforting. So that's one thing to think about. I think the things that are hard with a portfolio career are things that I think are kind of interesting, worth exploring more, or maybe there'll be some kind of more frameworks or more understanding on this is around like, how do you know when your idea is something that you can really develop into sustainable income from it? How do you know this potential course idea is something that could be, you know, could that would force you to make a big change in terms of how much time you spend on this? You know, in startup world, they always talk about kind of like the TAM, which is total addressable market. What is the potential for this cohort-based course that you're designing. And maybe you should be t- telling us about this, Aga. Because what I've noticed is things always take longer. And so I think like that's kind of the challenge is like, you have this interesting idea, you maybe want to bring it to market, but knowing that it's going to be harder and knowing that it's going to take longer, that's kind of a challenge that I think people face. It's definitely something that I've experienced. And so one thing that, so that's definitely something that's like, how many newsletter subscribers do you need to have? Like, have you monetized those other things? Like, I think it'd be really interesting to kind of look at some playbooks on stuff like that. Like, how did somebody really go from, had this type of following, this type of audience, and then tried this product, learned from it, sold it this way. There's more and more transparencies happening to people's personal projects in terms of how much book sales and course sales and costs of these things. Like two, three years ago, I didn't see any of this stuff, but now you're starting to see it. And I think that that is really cool. I'm just thinking about what you said about this fact that everything takes longer to reach the market. And one thing is that basically a lot of things take longer to develop from how we optimistically view them when we start working on them. But the other thing is... And this is a concept that I'm just fascinated by. And this is the concept of resistance from Stephen Pressfield. So basically this idea that there is this evil force working against you, which is your self-sabotaging mechanisms. And I've noticed for myself that I either struggle a lot, not necessarily with doing things that take longer than I expected, but with just pushing through this jelly resistance sort of feeling (laughs) that allows me to get rolling with the thing they wanted to do or 
the other way that I do is that I have to trick myself into telling my resistance that I'm actually not doing this big thing. I'm just doing this tiny, tiny little thing. And then, you know, like once I start doing this, things happen. Do you experience that? Isn't the joke that nobody wants to admit or isn't the joke like the resistance is a clue and mm. that it means that you're onto something? Yeah. I experience resistance a lot. You know, kind of the theme of your series, the 11th series and major kudos to you and Lucas is around this concept of doing, right? And we're talking about projects, we're talking about experiments. I experience a lot of resistance on the new projects, the new experiments. But I do think that those are the ones that I learned the most from. You know, I think that I've learned by doing, obviously, but in like 2019, 2018, 2019, to during the podcast in Journey, and a podcast guest said, oh, I think it's really interesting. Like you send really great emails. Like you should teach people how to do this. And I was like, wait, what? And like, I had no idea. So then I ran like an in-person workshop called Empathy Email Workshop. Then I was like, okay, let me, let me just try this. And I at least knew that there was somebody that was like kind of interested in the idea. But in starting the pandemic in April, March, 2020, I tried to run a couple different experiments, kind of mini masterminds, stuff like that. I knew that people were interested in doing some stuff, but I didn't really know what they wanted. And so there was a plenty of resistance there on like inviting people to things. But now I look back on those and I'm like, those were good experiences worth learning from. But uh, yeah, I think the resistance, it kind of comes in two ways, right? There's resistance of like, is this making me feel small in a bad way? Or there's a resistance in terms of like, this feels uncomfortable, but I'm curious to see what it's going to look like on the other side. There's the resistance of like, I don't like this relationship. I don't like what's going on here. I'm having resistance to talking to this person or doing this work of like, it feels bad, but there's the good resistance of, I want to do this. I'm not sure what it's going to be like though. As you were saying this, and you mentioned before about the fact that the metrics of your courses and podcasts and book sales are more visible right now comparing to a few years back. I'm almost tempted to say that I hate that fact. And again, I'll cite uh, Stephen Pressfield here. It's not the war of art, but I think it's in his one of his other little books is either do or the turning pro that he says that there are like a number of, of various reasons why people do certain things. And it can be, you know, like to show someone else that they are able to do it, to get more, whatever, you know, like money, listeners, fame, you name it. And he said that there are like just two reasons that make people stick to what they are doing, truly stick to it. And one is for the fun and beauty of it. And the second is because I have to. Mm. <laughs> and in many things that I've been doing in the recent years, I really use this metric as a, as a tool to, on the one hand, battle my resistance, but on the other hand, as a Ockham razor to see, okay, is it something they really want to do or am I fooling myself because, you know, my ego is happier when I do it. 
do you see that as the have to can be because of like, you know, the story you're telling yourself? I have to publish a podcast episode or I have to do this. Like it can be a good have to, mm-hmm. like a generous have to. This is have to in a good way compared to have to in a nagging way of your parents telling you to clean your room have to kind of way. <laughs> no, it's definitely the the first. And I think that for me, it's more like it has to get out of me, <laughs> you know? Mm. So there is like this external force, like I had it with the book that I recently finished writing. This book wanted out. The only thing I could do is to open the top and let it out. You know, otherwise I would just choke on it. <laughs> and at least I noticed it for myself that the more I have this mindset of doing these things because they want out, because I'm I'm the vessel for them, the more of these kind of things I'm doing and the happier I am about doing them, which is that interesting causality relationship there. Mm-hmm. That's interesting you say that idea around... I had to get this book out of me. I think a lot of other founders think very similar and other authors too, of just like, it's like in service of the idea, it's in service of the work and service of the product. But that being said, like, sometimes I have those. A lot of times I don't. It's more about like, do I think this is good for me? Do I think this is a good idea? Do I think this is going to help some people? Is this an idea worth exploring? I would love to have those light bulb moments like you have. If you want to pass them to me over Zoom, I'd <laughs> there love them. There they go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think those, you know, those are home runs. I don't know. I think there could be like a personality type thing. Like I am usually one of a person that when I find something, I usually kind of stick to it. And maybe I don't find the big shiny thing. And so therefore I don't kind of go up and down. Uh, but more about do I find something consistent and keep going with it. In the last couple of weeks though, I have, and maybe it's because I've feeling a little bit more stable, a little bit more comfortable after many different projects and many different, like a lot of uncertainty for many years of now feeling more stable, feeling healthy, grateful for a lot of things that in the last couple of weeks, I had had a couple of new ideas kind of pop up. And I do think it's also been a combination of prior ideas combined with new skills kind of catching up to me and the other things that I was doing. So I'm kind of experimenting. Uh, I don't know if I should tell you this, but I've been working on a, by the time this episode comes out, probably would be out, but I've been working on a new course and I, yeah, have reached a point where I feel like I've got some things that I want to share and have figured out or learned through some other things of how to kind of execute it and stuff like that. And so I'm like, all right, let me experiment with this. And I think it popped up because I had a little bit more time and it was like on a Saturday or Sunday. I felt like I just had so much more, had like juice and energy in me that I hadn't had in a little while. And it just kind of like the light bulb kind of went off. And so like in like five hours, I like wrote out all this curriculum and And then of course, now I'm like going through it and it's taking longer than I expected. But (laughs) um, I I honestly, I was trying to 
have it done and ready for our conversation. Like our conversation almost was like a little bit of a forcing function to me of like, it would have been cool to be able to like say, oh, and by the way, you want to learn about this new thing. So I did kind of like some of that forcing function. I also was trying to utilize like, thankfully just published episode 200. I was also trying to think about, okay, sometimes you get kind of moments where you're able to piggyback off of something else. And in this case, I was like, oh, I could utilize episode 200 as a way to share like another update or provide a resource or provide a gift or something like that. That's what I was trying to do. Didn't quite happen, but I do think uh, something will be ready in the next week or two. Mm. Although, like you said, it didn't happen as of now. By the time the episode is out, it's going to happen. And I'm sure it's going to happen knowing you. So could you tell us more? Sure. Yeah. So it's an email-based course, actually on podcasting. It's kind of meta. We're talking about this on a podcast, but you know, I've spent a fair amount of time podcasting. I spent a fair amount of time coaching podcasters. And I've been noticing recently, people have been asking me like, Hey, can you give me an overview on all these different things? Do you have a big blog post, et cetera? So then I was like, well, what about an email course instead? So it's about eight lessons on how to start and scale a podcast. Just, you know, for now it's a project and it's kind of a free kind of giveaway. We'll see if anyone's interested in it. But another thing that I think is good about this kind of, I think for myself is like, sometimes I think you reach certain milestones and it's, it's a good idea to publish something. Um, it's a good idea to create some kind of wrapper around, around it. And it might just be a good way to like celebrate the progress that you've made. But also the longer and longer you go, you can kind of get removed from some of those early learnings or some of those early big things. So part of this process is also me like putting a little bit of a wrapper on this, but also knowing that like I'm not planning to do some other kind of big course or big thing. So this is a fun little experiment as a way to like put a little bow, a little pin on this this chapter, so to speak, or at least kind of where I'm at in this milestone, see where it goes and hopefully helps a couple people. So that day when I like had that juice and I was like, oh my gosh, I could quickly put this together. If nothing else to me, it was worth it. (laughs) But uh, I think hopefully it's helpful to other people. Mm -hmm. Let's give a pointer to our listeners uh, where they should be looking for it. So it'll be on my website, portfoliocurvepodcast.com slash course. There's a small little kind of landing page there right now, uh, but that, that'll that be the place to go. Hmm. So this is a little bit of accountability, right? <laughs> that yeah, we've been talking was. about. <laughs> exactly. Totally. A hundred percent, Aga. <laughs> There's one thing that I heard from what you were saying, which is amazing in the work that you're doing. And it is the generosity with which you approach these endeavors that you are following. And I'm curious, what does generosity mean to you? Generosity is a beautiful word. I think it's in service of other people. It's taking either something you've learned and or being in service of other people with like your energy, your posture, your attention. 
in a way that is useful and productive to other people. It's kind of like, here, I made this. This is for you kind of thing. I think generosity is, has been really modeled for me in these cohort-based courses. And I would like to be in a world that's a generous place. <laughs> and I think that we all have so much to, to teach and so much to share with other people. And I think going back to accountability, sometimes it only takes like one person to say like, hey, I, got, I would love to read your book on experience design. And you're like, really? Like, yeah, I I would love to read it. And just that one act, that one person, like you may publish a whole book because of one person. Mm -hmm. And so I think we all have a lot of opportunity to have impact on people. And they can even just be in small ways that can have, you know, profound impacts. That brings me to a, a topic that I think that we both are quite involved with and fascinated by, which is lifelong learning and adult education. And I'm curious, how do you see that education today for our generation, in our times, in the situation that we find ourselves in? Well, I think it's learning as a choice. There's no shortage of information. I think what we should try to look for is kind of vehicles and or incentives that motivate us and encourage us to learn. You know, so signing up for a cohort-based course, perfect way. You've got people, you've got a teacher, you've got a path forward. And so I think those are, those are great. I think we all kind of also have learned a lot through the last 18 months, two years of like, there's just a lot of different ways to connect with a lot of different people. So I'd like to continue to remind myself of just what I've done over the last two years, how many people, how generous people were about wanting to teach and wanting to share. One of my roommates has read over 500 books. So I see a bookshelf of 500 books. <laughs> so that's a good way to be constantly thinking about learning. Um, whenever people come over, they always ask about the bookshelf. It's probably a good idea for me to at least be knowledgeable about one of those books. <laughs> uh, so again, it kind of goes back to like your environment. It goes back to accountability. It goes back to social pressure. But I think we are moving to a world where lifelong learning is becoming more and more popular. Mm -hmm. um, I think organizations are prioritizing learning more and more. You know, I see this happening in some of the circles and conversations I have where people are asking, you know, what is your learning and development budget at your company? And I don't really remember those kind of conversations a couple of years ago. Mm. So I think we're moving there. For me, it also, in addition to the podcast being as a, a learning vehicle, sometimes I'll, I'll read books as a backup plan for the podcast. And so sometimes I'll, you know, when you produce, as you know, produce a show on a frequent basis, things happen. <laughs> and so sometimes I'll, I'll read a book as a backup plan in case somebody needs to reschedule and stuff. So I think finding those kind of forcing functions uh, for you to continue to learn and to enjoy the learning. Naval Ravikant is a tech entrepreneur and of an investor. And he has got a really great quote where he says, read what you love until you love to read. Mm. So you don't have to take somebody else's book recommendation on what really works well for them. Find the thing that like the book that you want to read and just keep reading to that. 
And then you'll be curious about the next book and then you'll enjoy reading that. Um, you don't have to read what other people are reading. We're not, you know, in uh, middle school again. Um, <laughs> we have the obligatory <laughs> reading list, right? <laughs> yeah. And you can reread the same book over and over again too. So that's another thing that I think is good to, for people to remember. For me, the amazing learning from the podcast fellowship, I also did the Alden MBA before, was that when you have a cohort-based education, this education is not about the teacher, it's about you. And it's a very interesting shift for adult education in my perspective. So basically, typically we are used from school that you have this guru person standing there telling you how the world is or should be or, you know, like what is the truth. And in the courses that Seth builds, the accent is put in a different place. And in a way, I believe that in that adult education, this aspect of having a mirror and accountability, like you mentioned, but also a mirror really. So, you know, like having someone who sees you and hears you and tries to understand what you add or where you come from is such a powerful tool for adult education to be using more and more, I think. Totally. I'm happy to riff on this further, but I think uh, I would like to tell listeners to check out your episode with Kelly Wood. I think it was like episode like five or six or so. Yeah. That was a powerful episode. And I think she really, at least for me, my listening, really articulated these learning environments, these learning cohort-based courses about the individual. And everything is designed around your personal learning journey. Powerful, incredible episode. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. It was a long time ago. My gosh. Kelly is not with uh, Akimbo anymore, I think. She moved on to other projects. Uh, as I'm looking at the clock and I see that it's uh, inevitably coming to half past, I would love to throw at you the question, what is your very personal practice of putting things out in the world? To me, the practice has been around starting kind of around the spring of 2020 has been kind of monthly experiments that we kind of talked about a little bit before. Useful experiments that have gone beyond my initial thing that I've kind of signed up for. And all those experiments and gatherings and workshops and things like that have all been really useful, but those have been the ones that definitely have the resistance but it does feel like I've kind of extended myself to a place of new possibilities. And I'm looking to do more of those this year. I'm looking to do more experiments, hopefully maybe some more in-person stuff, knock on wood. Um, I'm curious to see what are those types of experiments that I could kind of run in person. I've done some really great stuff that I'm proud of uh, online. I would like to try to see if, what I can do in person. One thing that I am trying to do a better job of is noticing people and my friends doing high quality work and just letting them know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like, love it. I think that there is a lot of people that are doing incredible things that wouldn't mind hearing from me or anybody else about the work that they're doing. So, you know, a prompt to the listeners are 
letting Aga know how great this podcast is. Um, but it's things like that. It's it's not that hard, but it does take a little bit of emotional discomfort of like, oh, does she really want to hear from me? And the answer is yes. Um, yes. Yes. Sorry to, sorry to speak <laughs> on your behalf, but um, I think it's it's those things. Um, and so I'm I'm trying to continue to remember some of the things that I've done over the past two years and just to keep doing them. Mm -hmm. So if you look back at all those experiments that you mentioned, which of them are you the proudest of or the happiest about? It's probably the first one because then I realized that there was something that I could keep going a little bit. So the first one was in March, 2020, I invited prior podcast guests to celebrate episode 100. Mm -hmm. And I was really nervous on who was going to show up. But looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, like seeing how what these people are now doing, I'm like, I got so lucky. Why did they come together on that day for me? I think it was that first one, especially during the the heat of the pandemic and the beginning of things where there's so much uncertainty. Mm -hmm. That to me had a little bit of like a snowball effect of like, okay, like what are some other types of things that I could do? You always remember the first one. You always mm. remember the first people that believe in you. And so I think the the thing that I'm also trying to think about is like, how could I be the first person for someone else? How can you be the first yes to somebody else? Oh, I love it. You've already talked about a few books here. And you also said that uh, people shouldn't really listen to the <laughs> obligatory <laughs> reading lists. However, I would still love to ask you, what would be the book that you could recommend to our listeners that makes them do things and do them in a generous way? Two books. The Business of Community by David Spinks, because we were talking about community building. I think that that would be a good book if people are interested in community building. Um, I think that'd be a good book for people. But the other book is Your Music and People by Derek Sivers. Uh-huh. That book really kind of turned on some lights for me. Well, it's written in a really beautiful way of two to three page blog posts. And it describes Derek's music business, mm-hmm. or is initially intended to be for musicians. But I think it really is targeted for more for, uh, or is applicable also to professionals. It's applicable to creatives, creators, people that are, you know, created in their own body of work. I mean, one quote that stands out to me is like, I'm going to get it wrong, but I think it's the difference between success and not can be as simple as staying in touch with people. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. So it's a lot of little small hooks like that. And, you know, has elements of kind of marketing and has elements of, servant leadership and all kind of wrapped in a vein of um, Derek's music business CD baby that he sold. It's a great book, very digestible, easy to read. I would uh, check that out. David, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. Lukasz will be so jealous that he didn't have a chance to join us today. I've been, <laughs> I've been loving this. I can't believe we're stopping, but to be continued. You definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Aga. Really appreciate it. (laughs) Go, go, go. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter 
at malka6 and at dls6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. How about you all? What are you all celebrating? 